Our first lesson this morning is from the book of Psalms, Psalm 133. How very good and pleasant it is when kindred live together in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down upon the beard on the beard of Aaron, running down over the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord ordained his blessing, life forevermore. Our epistle lesson this morning is found in Ephesians chapter 2, and we shall read verses 11 to 16. So then, remember that at one time you Gentiles by birth called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision, a physical circumcision made in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace. In his flesh he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall that is the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two thus making peace, and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. And our gospel lesson this morning is found in the gospel according to St. John chapter 10. We shall read verses 7 to 17. So again, Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and bandits, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters by me will be saved and will come in and out and go and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, who is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and runs away, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. The hired hand runs away because a hired hand does not care for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father... And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life in order to take it up again. Thanks be to God for these readings from his own holy word. You don't have to teach a child to be mean or spiteful. You don't have to teach a child to be cruel or to find fiendish pleasure in being cruel. You don't have to teach a child to torment someone who dresses unusually or who speaks with a slightly different accent. Only the silliest romantics, never in short supply despite their naiveness, 
think that children are innocent or pure or untainted. In a fallen world of fallen human beings, antagonistic behavior comes naturally. But we needn't single out children. Adults are no better. To be sure, we adults try to disguise what children do openly. This only proves that we adults are cruel and cagey at the same time. What bubbles up undisguised and unsuppressed in children effervesces just as relentlessly in adults. All of this adds up to a truth that Christians never doubt. Namely, in a fallen world, hostility is found at all times and in all places, together with that estrangement which hostility produces and perpetuates. The fact of prejudice is surely irrefutable confirmation of all of this. Prejudice never has to be taught. And by definition, there's no reason for prejudice. By definition, prejudice is an irrational fear of specific kinds of people or classes or nations or races or social groups. <laughs> prejudice, of course, is always the proof we need that humankind's multi-fronted alienation is rooted in an irrationality that contradicts the rationality we all prefer to think we have in spades. From a purely rational standpoint, all such alienation is groundless. To say it's groundless rationally is simply to say it's unreasonable, it's incomprehensible. Still, to say it's groundless rationally isn't to say it's groundless absolutely. For in fact, prejudice, alienation for which no adequate cause can be found, is grounded in our root condition as sinners. Anyone acquainted with Christian vocabulary knows that alienation is rooted in human sin. Specifically, it's rooted in God's judgment upon our sin. We are alienated from God. We are alienated from our fellows. We are alienated from our true self. I admit, however, that not all human alienation appears to be rooted in the incomprehensible mystery of sin. Some alienation appears to be rooted in that sin whose manifestation is entirely understandable. Why am I alienated from my cousin? Because he resents my new home. And why are you alienated from your boss? Because he demoted you in order to promote his daughter. The truth is, people have treated us shabbily. They have lied to us or betrayed us or exploited us or humiliated us. In this situation, the gulf that has opened up between them and us, the alienation that won't go away, this has nothing to do with prejudice. It has everything to do with events that are as undeniable as they are unforgettable. Where we or others are exploited or cheated or slandered, we are angry and rightfully angry. Jesus was angry repeatedly. Every day of his public ministry, he blew up, it would seem, according to the written Gospels. He was angry when he saw defenseless people exploited. He was angry when he saw sincere people misled by religious leaders. He was angry when he saw needy people fleeced financially. Not only was he angry in those situations, he expects you and me to be angry in similar situations. The person who is indifferent where our Lord is angry is a person whose indifference we had better not call peace-loving or peacemaking. To be indifferent where others are abused or exploited or slandered is simply to be spiritually defective ourselves. Still... Today we are probing the gospel blessing of reconciliation. 
doesn't anger, however right and righteous, merely intensify estrangement? Doesn't anger, however appropriate, merely inhibit reconciliation? The Apostle Paul, whose passion for reconciliation everywhere in life is at the forefront of his thought and work, he can help us here. Be angry, he says, but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. In other words, while it is sin not to be angry in the face of manifest exploitation or abuse, it is equally sin to allow our anger to settle into the mood of seething, festering bitterness. A wise old Christian who had the gospel in his bloodstream said to me one day, Victor, anger in a Christian is proper and fruitful only if it's accompanied by grief. If I have harmed you in any way, you may and you should be angry with me. Yet only as you are also grieved at my insensitivity, that is, only as you see something pitiable in my calloused spirit, will your proper anger at me avoid falling, falling into festering bitterness. We may and we should be angry with the fellow who assaulted an elderly woman for the $10 in her purse. But if our anger isn't merely to add to the cauldron of violence boiling already in the world, one item of which is this fellow's assault, then we must find pitiable that 20-year-old who is as twisted as he is and whose future is as bleak as his certainly now is. If our anger, legitimate anger, towards that fellow isn't accompanied by our grief, then our rage is as reprehensible as his cruelty. The truth is, in a fallen world, there is at all times a multifaceted estrangement arising from what we all understand, premeditated, deliberate nastiness, and also what, from what nobody can understand, the mystery of sin in our depraved estate. Regardless of the kind of estrangement, however, regardless of the extent to which it can be understood, the gospel is inherently reconciling. Wherever the gospel is operative through the power of the Holy Spirit, reconciliation occurs. Because we love the one who is the reconciler, God, we want to be reconcilers in our own way and according to his mandate for us. The last thing we want to do is render inoperative our attempts at reconciliation or discredit God's then we have to learn how estrangement is overcome and how antagonism is diffused. We have to learn how genuine shalom is promoted rather than indifference touted. We learn this or learn it afresh only as we are soaked in God's reconciliation of us and understand how it occurred. How did he do it? What did he do? How does it all work? Paul writes in Romans 5, While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him by the death of his son. The first thing we have to notice here is that it's the offended party, God in this case, who initiates reconciliation. We had violated him. We had wounded him, yet he reconciled us to himself. There is no harder point for people to grasp I have found than this. We always assume the opposite. We always assume that the responsibility for initiating reconciliation lies with the offender. After all, it's the offender who did the bloodletting. 
it's the offender who turned bond into breach, then let the offender fix it, we say. If my wife spears me and intimacy gives way to a gap between us the size of the Grand Canyon, then surely it's her responsibility to repair the breach because she caused it, didn't she? Meanwhile, I tell myself I can only wait until she undoes the damage she did. So I'll wait, however long I have to wait, and I can wait a long time. (laughs) This logic is perfectly logical with the logic of the world. It is equally illogical according to the logic of the gospel. For according to the gospel, the gospel, you know, is God's spell, the spell which God has cast upon you and me. According to the gospel, God fashioned our reconciliation with him when we were wholly to blame for the enmity. It takes a while for this reversal of the world's logic to register with us. But once the logic of the gospel has sunk in, we understand why it has to be the offended person who initiates reconciliation. The offender, the person who caused the rupture in the first place, may not even be aware of what he has done. Remember, you and I were sinners long before we became aware that we were sinners. We had broken God's heart long before we learned we had done this. What's more, if the offender is aware of what he's done, he will consciously excuse or unconsciously rationalize the enmity he's caused. Already he can recite ten sound reasons for his offensiveness. In addition, the offender will feel so right about it all that he would regard any attempt on his part to seek reconciliation as weakness. This is how the world, the fallen world, we should note, thinks. But this is not how Christians think in conforming to the reconciling activity of God. The second thing to be noticed is similar. The cost of reconciliation is always borne by the offended party. The cost of reconciliation isn't borne by the offender. While we were enemies, scripture informs us, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. We offended God. Wrapped up in our self-extenuating rationalization, we were prepared to live, live indefinitely with the subsequent estrangement. But God couldn't live with it. He, the one we had wounded, he couldn't live with it. He sought to reconcile us to himself. At what price? The price was breathtaking. He gave up himself, which is to say he sacrificed. He gave up his son, which is to say he sacrificed himself. The cost, the pain of our reconciliation to him, God absorbs himself. Pained as he is by our violation of him. Pained still more by the estrangement that arises from such violation. He now pains himself inestimably more by bearing the cost of getting us home with him. There is no such thing as reconciliation anywhere in life that costs nothing. It doesn't exist. Estrangement corrodes. Hostility is an acid that eats away at us, even as it eats away at the person on the other side of the divide. Of itself, the corrosion will only worsen until the relationship is pitted and pockmarked, then weakened, and finally crumbled. What it takes to overcome acid-fed corrosion and unsightliness and pulverization, namely reconciliation, this can't be picked up at the dollar store. (laughs) 
To say that our reconciliation to God cost him the death of his son is to say that you and I will never be able to grasp fully its price. Still, we can grasp enough to see that reconciliation anywhere in life is going to cost somebody everything. And in fact, it's the offended person already victimized who now freely victimizes herself. Isn't this exactly how it feels? This is what she does in order to diffuse the antagonism, end the standoff, and overcome estrangement. The cost we bear and the pain we absorb is real and it's pronounced even where it isn't dramatic. Just because it isn't dramatic, it will seem insignificant to others. But it's never insignificant even if it isn't dramatic. I have in mind our aspiration to promote reconciliation, for instance, through our resolve to not to focus on and intensify the pain we are in already through having been shafted, even if we can't ignore such pain. Or perhaps what's required of us if reconciliation is to occur is this. We are going to resist the temptation to display or advertise the offense that wounded us in the first place. Plainly, as long as we are advertising the offense and our pain over it, reconciliation is far from our heart. Perhaps what's required of us is this. Having been stung once already, we now have to risk being stung again. Just a minute, somebody interjects. Just a minute, anybody who sticks his neck out a second time is a fool. I agree. He is a fool. Yet according to the gospel, there are two kinds of fools. There are those who are fools merely because they're unwise. And there are those with much wisdom who for just that reason are free to be fools for Christ's sake. Frankly, anyone who risks herself, exposes herself, lives vulnerably for the sake of promoting reconciliation, any such person is always going to appear a fool. But the alternative to turning towards the offender in our vulnerability is to turn towards the offender in our armor. And armor reconciles nobody. What else is the cross except God's vulnerability exposed to the world? And what else is the cross except God's self-initiated, anguish-bearing deed of reconciliation on behalf of those who have offended him, most of whom don't even know it? Few of us have been physically assaulted. All of us have been psychologically assaulted. We've all been trampled on, run over, put down, publicly humiliated, ridiculed quietly, or perchance ridiculed noisily. Pained as we are by it, the gospel insists that it's we, the victim, who has to initiate reconciliation. After all, the word gospel, as I told you a minute ago, is derived from the old English word, God's spell. A spell is something that a spiritual superior power puts on people so as to alter them. To say that we are the beneficiaries of the gospel is to say that God's spell has altered us profoundly, altered us after his own heart. To have God's spell put on us means that we are now impelled to do unto others as he has already done unto us in Christ. It was while we were enemies and inexcusable enemies that we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. 
In this huge matter of hostility and reconciliation, there's a matter we have to be clear about. This matter Paul discusses in his letter to the church in Ephesus, where he insists that in Jesus Christ, the dividing wall of hostility, as he puts it, has been crumbled. In the ancient world, the highest wall, so high in fact that it could never be climbed over, it could never be surmounted, was the wall separating Jew and Gentile. Because this dividing wall of hostility was utterly insurmountable, it also represented any lesser wall that separated people from each other anywhere for any reason or for no reason. And precisely this wall, humanly insurmountable, God has broken down, says Paul, in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now the wall doesn't exist at all. And in place of the two hostile persons God has created, he says, one new person in Christ. And if this insurmountable wall has been crumbled, so have all the lesser walls that it represents. And who is aware of this? Christians are. Now, to be sure, we alone are, but at least we are. We know that in Christ Jesus, God has fashioned one new person in place of two hostile persons. What does it mean, then, if you and I claim to be disciples of Jesus Christ and then live as if the wall were still standing? What does it mean if we orient ourselves as, uh, to, as if the dividing wall of hostility were fixed forever before us? Would it mean that we were mistaken? Would it even mean that we might be bigoted? What would any of us say if we came upon someone who insisted right now that there was a huge wall squarely in the middle of Highway 400 and it was his job to make sure the wall stayed put, even repair it from time to time? We wouldn't say that that person was mistaken. Neither would we say that he was bigoted. We would dial 911 and ask for an ambulance because plainly that person is insane. If you and I take the name of Christ upon our lips and then suggest in word or deed that there are dividing walls that are real and they need to be shored up, we are simply spiritually psychotic. I know, I know, hostility and antagonism remain the order of a fallen universe. And certainly we live in that universe and have to live in it. But finally, ultimately, we Christians live in Christ. We live in the one in whom the fall has been overturned. We live in the one in whom all the dividing walls have been crumbled. To say the same thing differently, we always have a foot in both worlds, but we don't distribute our weight evenly over both feet. Even as we have a, feet, a foot in both worlds, we have shifted our weight onto that foot which is planted in the world of reconciliation. We don't want to reflect the world's antagonisms back to the world, thereby making everything worse. We want to reflect the truth and the reality of Christ's reconciliation into darkened corners where darkened people continue to think that assorted walls of hostility are still standing. We want only to hold up reconciliation, God's reconciliation with us and ours with our fellows, and all of this just because we know where reconciliation was first wrought and how it was wrought namely at a cross where the God we had offended and pained absorbed his pain. He simply sucked it up in order to have us home again. 
I know what someone's going to say before I sit down. Our efforts at reconciliation don't always work. There are situations, many situations, where we've swallowed our rights and absorbed our pain and risked ourselves again and again, only to have it all thrown back in our face. The relationship we hoped to recover has remained dead and now gives every appearance of remaining dead forever. What then? We must remember that it's never our task to be successful. It's always and only our task to be faithful. Our only responsibility is to be agents of reconciliation by living the truth of reconciliation we already know and enjoy in Christ. The fruitfulness of our effort we have to leave with God. And God has promised that regardless of the fruitfulness we don't see, our lived witness will never be fruitless finally. Its fruitfulness may be hidden from us for now, but its ultimate fruitfulness is never in doubt. Assured of this, we can even now claim for ourselves the joy of the psalmist when he writes, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers, sisters too, dwell together in unity. Would you stand, please? Seeking Jesus Christ, you did come. In his abiding presence, go now in peace. And the blessing of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, rest upon and remain with you always.